Well, hello, church family. Hey. <laughs> I'm not allowed to walk very much today, in case you guys are wondering. We'll see if that happens. <laughs> so, I am very excited to see what the Holy Spirit has for us today. So, let's get to it. We are in part four of a 13-part series going through the book of Ephesians. The focus is our identity in Christ. So far, we've been through Ephesians 1 and the first part of Ephesians 2. And in the introduction to Ephesians, Paul gives a very short greeting, and then he kind of goes right into it. This is sort of a review of what we've already covered, but I wanted to point it out to you guys. Verse 4. Chosen before time itself to be holy and blameless. Verse 5. Paul says we are predestined for adoption. Verse 7. He says we are redeemed through the blood of Christ. Verse 9. We're given insight into the will of God. Wow. Verse 11 and 12, we are included in the grand plan of God. And verse 13 is we are marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. That's quite the introduction. As I was praying about what to speak to you guys about today, one of the questions that really jumped out at me is, okay, this is our identity. This is our identity in Christ. And if you read through Paul's letters, he makes mention of this over and over and over. This is emphasized quite a bit. This is who we are. So, the question then is, why does that matter? What is Identity. What do we say? What do we mean when we say identity? So we're going to do. A, we're going to spend a little bit of time, and I'm going to talk about kind of break this down in the thought process of what, what does this word even mean? Because we all kind of shake our heads and we say, "Yeah, this is our identity in Christ." But I don't know if we have very have thought very much about what that word actually means. So let's start here. So when we're talking about identity, this is the process of identification, right? We look at the world. We categorize everything, right? Human beings are very categorically minded beings. We were created this way. We want to tell the difference between a tree and a crocodile, right? What is the identity between those things? What are we saying when we look at this? Well, I, probably what we're saying is a tree is very unlikely to try to kill you. At least while you're still alive. So what sets a thing apart from another thing? That's identification, right? That's the process of identification. So what are we talking about when we're talking about human beings? What characteristics, right? That kind of follows. Okay. So then the next step is what are the defining characteristics of a human being, of an individual human being. Okay, that takes us another step. What sets you apart? 
Is that identity? What sets you apart? Well, I don't think that tells the whole picture. I don't think that's what we mean when we talk about identity. I think that's one of those things that, yes, intellectually, I think that follows. But what are we saying in our heart when we say identity? It's more than just characteristics. It's more than just attributes. In fact, I would argue to you, it's one of the three main questions that all human beings have to ask themselves. You've answered these questions for yourself, whether you know it or not. The, first, the three questions are, why is there something instead of nothing? Question number two, why am I here? And question number three is, who am I? And identity is an essential part of this. Let me prove it to you. You're sitting in a football field. Captain A, Captain B, they're picking different people, right? Captain A goes first. He says, I'm going to choose this person because he's the best combination of fast, strong, and skilled. Captain B goes and he says, okay, well, I'm going to choose this person because he's the best combination left of fast, strong, and skilled. And I'll maybe sacrifice a little bit. I'll choose the one who is less skilled in order to get fast and strong or whatever it is, right? Okay? This is a very brutal analysis of the attributes of someone in order to be chosen for a team. Okay, there's one example. Here's the next example. You're sitting in a high-rise somewhere at a conference table surrounded by suits. And if any of this has ever happened to you guys, you know what happens next. Everybody sits down and there's an awkward pause. And then the question inevitably gets asked, okay, everyone, introduce yourself. Well, what do you say? It goes around the room and gets to you. Hi, I'm Matt Klingenberg. I'm a software developer. I've been at this company for 12 or so years. I developed a lot of the software we're here for. On and on and on, right? What are you saying in that instance? One more, two more examples. Date night. You're sitting across the table from the person that you hope maybe one day will become your, the love of your life. And you're looking at them, and they're beautiful, and they seem to be matching up with what you're looking for in a partner. They lean across the table, and they ask you the question, so tell me about yourself. What do you say? Is this a list of attributes? Last example. You wake up in the morning, groggily walk toward the bathroom window. <laughs> Bathroom mirror, <laughs> lean over your sink, look at yourself in the mirror. What do you see? What do you see when you're honest with yourself looking in the mirror? You see, these are more than just attributes, right? Attributes are a part of it, certainly. We have negative attributes. We look at ourselves in the mirror, maybe you see some of these attributes. Maybe you think failure, dropout, loser. Or maybe you look at yourself in the mirror and you see very positive attributes, right? I'm a success. I'm the master of my world. I'm rich. I'm beautiful. I'm smart. I'm deserving. That's a very popular one today. 
Or there's other ones. And these are kind of generic attributes, but these are kind of how we define ourselves, right? Student, businessman, mechanic, soldier, father, mother, pastor, blue-collar, redneck, socialite, patriot. What are these things? What are we saying? Why do they matter? Because what we're really saying when we look at these things, when we categorize ourselves, what we're really saying when we talk about identity is, here are the reasons why you should choose me. Here are the reasons why you should accept me. Here are the reasons why you should love me. This is my value. That is what we are saying when we talk about identity. So with that in mind, let's read through our verses. I hope you have your Bibles today. We're going to start in Ephesians 2, starting in 11, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Therefore, remember formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace." And might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into dwelling of God in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Lord, make these words real to us today. Help us understand what it means to have our identity in you. Dear Lord, thank you for all of your blessings. Thank you that we don't deserve any of these things, Lord, but you have come and given it to us by your grace alone. In your name, amen. Okay, let's start with that first. Verse 11 and 12 is a call to remember. One of the actions of the disciples, right? Remember. What are we taught we need to remember? What are we taught that we need to remember? Well, a lot of times when we talk about remembrance, we're talking about very positive things. 
right? Remember the things that God has done for you. Remember the times that he's come through for you. And here, Paul calls us to remember what? Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember, chapter 1, Paul has just defined identity for us in Christ. Now here in chapter 2, what's he saying? Remember, here's who you were before Christ. Now, I know some of you probably grew up in the church and have been Christians forever and probably have never, don't even remember what it's like to not be a Christian. Praise the Lord. But I think you can probably identify with our culture. You can look through this verse and see it very clearly in your own life, what it is like to be separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth. What does Paul mean? Here are the five things. Christless, stateless, friendless, godless, hopeless. This is our identity apart from Christ. All those other things that I mentioned earlier, this is the true identity. So what do they mean? Christless. No hope of the Messiah. No knowledge. No knowledge of, the, of a coming king that would come make things right. Why would I look forward to anything? Stateless. Now, there's a couple different ways to think about this. Um, no citizenship. But I prefer to think of it as you are without state. Right? Gas, liquid, solid. Stateless. You have no place in the world, undefined, amorphous, friendless, no true acceptance. Why do I hang out with you? Why do you hang out with your friends? What's the real reason? What is the value statement? Godless. Now, what does godless mean? Does that mean before we were Christians, we had no gods? No. No, in fact, it means we made gods of all things. We could, we could go out and find and make gods out of anything. A very interesting fact, though, it seems like the gods that we tend to make are the ones that are most interested in pleasing us. Lastly, hopeless. No concept of salvation. So, apart from Christ, where does my value come from? How can I gain value? Now, we're in church here, right? So I'm sure all of you are thinking, well, you can't. There is no value apart from Christ, right? Well, okay, yes, that's the church answer. But do we believe that? Do you believe that? Because our culture says that there are actually several ways to gain value, right? And if you examine your life, you'll probably find that you believe that this is true as well. There are three ways of gaining value. I'll start with the last one, power. 
This is Caligula, this is Ramses, this is Caesar, this is Ozymandias. I can gain power, that will gain me respect, and therefore I will be valued. Number two, works. What's the old saying? You spend a day, of, spend a day in work, right? You push hard against a stone, whatever it is, and you come home, how do you feel besides tired? You feel good, right? Why? Because you've added value to something. You've contributed to something. And because you've added value to something, therefore, you have value. Lastly is affirmation. And if we're honest, this is kind of the real one. This is the one that actually gain us value because we can't have value unto ourselves. Amen? Do you find that to be true in this world? Value must be assigned to you. And I wish I had time to really dig into that one. But we must be affirmed by others as having value. You ever met someone in your life who you give a compliment to them and they remind you of it every time you meet them? Or have you ever met someone who is so desperate for attention that all they ever do is talk about themselves? Besides being incredibly frustrating, what is this really saying about that person? What it is, is it's a cry for value, for affirmation. Now, in our world today, it's very difficult to actually gain value through power. There are some people who do it, but for the most part, that none of us are able to gain value through power. You can be super rich, but very quickly you find out you need value through other places. So where do we turn? Well, a lot of us, what we do is we turn to work. Now, this is especially true for the older generation. The younger generation, starting with my generation, sort of looks at work. And you've all heard this, right? You know this intrinsically. This generation, my generation, has looked at work and said, well, we've been told, hey, go to work. It'll make you feel good. You'll learn something. You'll build something. You'll do something with your life. And my generation, kids and younger, have looked at their parents and said, my parents are miserable. Why would I do that? You want me to go to work and work for some company that's going to pay me a tiny bit of money? I won't even be able to buy a car, nevertheless a house, right? I'll go, I'll go do that. I'll work for maybe 50, 60 years, and then I'll look at retirement, and then I'll go and I'll spend my, the rest of my twilight years broken down, and then I'll go and die and become dust. No! Why would I do that? This is our world today. We're seeing this. And so what's left? Affirmation. You must accept me. I have decided that you must love me. You must choose me. My worldview must match up with your worldview. And if it doesn't, if we take away affirmation, then what's left? That is why value is important. This is who we are before Christ, without Christ as our identity. Every person in this room 
Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What's Paul talking about here? Well, Paul was speaking to a very divided world, a very divided church. For him, it was the line between Jew and Gentile. This was a serious division in the church of Ephesus that he had to speak to. And he ties it back to identity, but it takes him a moment to build this argument. So we're going to follow through him with, with it through him. To understand, though, how big of an issue this was, in case you think, you know, I mean, we got problems today with division. But this is what the church looked like in Ephesus. This is a quote from William Barclay, who wrote a commentary on Ephesians. It says this, The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. They said that the Gentiles were created by God to fuel the fires of hell. That God loved only Israel of all nations that he had made. That the best of the serpents crushed and the best of the Gentiles killed. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile woman in childbirth, for that would be to bring another Gentile into the world. The barrier between Jew and Gentile was absolute. If a Jew married a Gentile, the funeral of that Jew was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. Even to go into a Gentile house rendered a Jew unclean. That is some serious division. Why? Why were the Jew and the Gentile so divided? Well, where does it sound like they're getting their value from? So let's think about this a little bit. Okay, so how does this apply to our church here today? Maybe a better question is, Okay, look around the room. <laughs> a lot of different people in here. How can we be united in Christ? Well, maybe it might be good to take a little bit of a thought experiment here when we're thinking about this. So, this is a map of the city of London. London's been around for about 2,000 years, right? Quite a while. Um, it touts itself as one of the most diverse cities in the world. Extremely diverse, lots of different people, and yet they all go, they're all living in the same city. It seems to be fairly peaceful. Why is that? Well, here's a demographics map of Israel, right? We're going to look at a couple demographics. This is where the Arabs live. The darker the blue, the more people live there, right? So this is where the Arabs live. That's where the Chinese live. That's where the French live. That's where the Indians live. The Spanish are kind of in the middle there. The Turkish, way up north. And if you're wondering where the English live, um, they don't in the city of London. They not, they're not in London. Okay, great. So what do we learn from this besides the obvious? Hang on. There we go. Besides the obvious racist conclusion, right? Well, these people must all be a bunch of racists. Well, I would argue that the racism thing is kind of a symptom. 
Because human beings want value. And how do I get value? Well, I'm going to look for people who share my same values. Because if they share my same values, that makes it more likely that they're going to value me. And what is one of the most obvious ways to detect if someone is similar to me or not? I can evaluate this instantly. I don't even need to talk to somebody. Well, it's their race. Right? So what do we learn from this? What we learn is people want to be around people who share their values. Shared values increases the likelihood of being valued. So people want to be around groups that share values. So how does that apply to the church? Do you feel like you're an outsider in the church? Do you feel like you are not good enough? Maybe you're not spiritual enough. Maybe you're not smart enough. You haven't read the Bible enough. Is that a division? Do you look around in the room and kind of put your head down when you come through the door and just kind of sit in the back? That's a classic thing for Baptist churches, by the way. I'm sure you all know that joke. So what does Paul say about this? We'll read it again. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood, by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, the unifier, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What unifies us? Christ unifies us. It's interesting, Paul is not giving a moral lecture here. This is what really needs to be emphasized here. This is not about being good enough. It's not about how you can justify yourself. Remember, that is a core of value, right? This is not about what attributes make you valuable. Do you know, this might shock some of you, but the church is full of sinners. Maybe even some of us are hypocrites. Welcome to earth. <laughs> right? So what's the difference between the church and the world? In 1 Corinthians, Paul makes this argument. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you're thinking, okay, well, who's excluded from this list in this room? Which one of us is excluded from this list? You want to raise your hand? No one. That's the whole shooting match. That's all of us. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God.
There was a man named John Bradford in that same city of London in the year 1553. He's sitting out there outside, um, and he's watching a bunch of prisoners being taken to the gallows. And he's quoted as saying this, There, but for the grace of God, go I. The only difference, the only difference between him and those prisoners was the grace, was that he had received the grace of God. Not that he had been saved from the gallows, because by the way, he wasn't. Two years later, the Catholics sent him to those same gallows because of his belief in the grace of God. But the thing that separated him was the grace of God. Let's continue. Verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two of us into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Amen. So what makes us different? It is our value, it is our united, the fact that we are united in Christ. Not that we don't have disagreements, by the way. Um, I think, in fact, one of the things we really misunderstand in Christianity today is we think that we shouldn't have disagreements. If you have a debate in church, that means the church is ununified and there's, there's something wrong going on there. You shouldn't argue in church. This is kind of a soapbox of mine, but I believe that that has neutered the church. The fact that we are different, the fact that we vary on different things is a good thing. But we should pursue truth more than anything else with the idea always in mind that we are united by our shared value because our value is what? Does it have anything to do with the color of our skin or those tags that we talked about? I'm a success, I'm rich, I'm poor, I'm a mechanic, I'm a patriot. Those values... Our unity comes from our shared value in Christ. We are a community of believers, sinners, hypocrites, who are trying to become better. But what really matters is that we love Jesus. So, what's the punchline? Where are we going with this? If we have these shared values, and now that we've agreed that our shared values come from Christ, here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's how you know if you are following Christ. Because your reason 
your value statement, your value statement being, here's why you should accept me. Here's why you should choose me. Here's why you should love me. The reason why I am justified is through Christ alone. Having a bit of a trouble with my clicker. Sorry about that. Um, Ephesians 2.19 says this. So then, result. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are no longer Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That is the punchline, church family. Where can I find my value? It is this. We are citizens of heaven, built on the household of God, with our foundation, the household of God being the church, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. For us, that's scripture. With the cornerstone, the most essential piece, being Christ Jesus. That is it. And I think one of the reasons why Satan is so effective in our world today is because he has been able to get us to believe that our value can come from somewhere else. Maybe you've heard this in your heart. Hey, you're not very good at this. You failed here and there. Hey, by the way, you're actually kind of worthless. And how are we taught to react to that? Well, in American culture, our reaction to that is just stomp our feet and say, no, I have value. I've decided that I have value. You've heard me say this over and over and over again. What's the result of that? Well, that goes back to the city of Seattle burning. Because the truth is, if we're on ourself, then Satan's right we are actually kind of worthless. So where does our value come from if it can't come from ourselves? If we can't assign ourselves value, and unfortunately, this will work for a little while, right? Maybe it'll even work for your whole life until the end. <laughs> but you can't even get value from other people. They'll make you feel good for a little while. They'll make you feel valued. They'll make you feel like you're contributing. But the truth is, 
eventually you will come to the conclusion that the only reason that you're valued from those people is because you are providing them value. Christ, on the other hand, gives value. The ultimate creator and master of the universe has decided, has declared that we have value. So I hope one day we will learn, and I'm just as much a part of this as anybody else, that all these things, these tags, right? If we're talking, I don't want to go on to a chat, but there's, there's a concept of metadata, which is like extra data that's attached to objects in computers. And metadata will kind of explain what those things are. And these things for us is our metadata. It's stuff. These are minor attributes. They don't describe who you are, and they will not give you value. It would be like taking a picture of a beach and describing it as a beach. Does that mean you're at the beach? Does that even come close to defining what a beach is? Is insufficient. And all these things that we take so much pride in do not matter. The only thing that matters is God's grace. That is the only place that we can find our value. 